When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you all the week's best science news. I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan. I'm New Scientist Features Editor. And I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. We're joined this week by another New Scientist Feature Editor, Josh Howdjigo. Hello. Coming up on this week's show, we have jazz and meteorites, water on the stock exchange, sample return missions from the moon and an asteroid, and a deep examination of the illusion of the continuous self. We also have news of an amazing discovery of ancient art in South America. But first, a quick reminder of a special offer available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist just by going to newscientist.com slash pod 20. Yes, that link will automatically give you the discount. Just go to newscientist.com slash pod 20 and you'll get the money off when you subscribe. You'll get all the benefits of the premium content in the mag, plus access to the treasures of the archive. And we'll be telling you a bit later about a special holiday live event free for subscribers. NewScientist.com slash pod20. Now let's have some music. So that was some lovely music, but uh, why are we hearing it, Josh? Who was that? Well, that was Hot Club de Norvège. Uh, otherwise uh, known as Hot Club of Norway. And it was a piece of jazz music by the musician John Larson. Um, Now, you may not have heard of him, but he is, in fact, one of Norway's most famous jazz guitarists. So I step away from the pod for a couple of weeks, I come back, and now we're just covering jazz? Uh, Yes. Sorry to break it to you, Tiff. We have become a jazz (laughs) podcast. No, 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 we haven't. We haven't, I'm afraid. Um, So the reason we're talking about John Larson is because... He happens to be a pretty impressive meteoriticist. That is somebody who studies meteorites. And he has shown that almost anybody can find a meteorite on their own roof. I mean, (laughs) I feel like if a meteorite hit my roof, I would probably know about it, right? Well, so you're you're right on the money, except there are kind of different types of meteorites. So when you when you hear the word meteorite, you're probably thinking, you know, something pretty sizable. Like, you know, there was that there was that one that hit over Russia a few years ago, wasn't there? But what we're talking about here is micrometeorites. So that is meteorites that are less than a millimeter across. So they sound like slightly less impressive versions of meteorites? Uh, I, I don't know if that's uh, fair. So obviously they are smaller. <laughs> um, but the thing about um, micrometeorites is that the, the, I guess the first thing is that they are much older 
than regular meteorites. So these are things that were kind of around at the birth of the sun uh, and the birth of the planets. They're kind of the leftovers, the stardust, if you like, from that process. Whereas the regular sized meteorites that, uh, you know, fall occasionally, those are kind of more advanced. So they've sort of been, they've been built up a little bit from that dust. So these are kind of much older, more pristine. Um, and also um, we get a lot more of them like there's like a hundred tons a day of this stuff that fall on the earth. So it's kind of everywhere. That's blown my mind. Like a hundred tons of like cosmic dirt is, is raining down and getting through the atmosphere onto us every day. Yeah, that's right. It's, wow. it's, that's the estimate at least. And uh, it is pretty mental. So if you do the maths then, and John Larson did do the maths, um, you can work out that it's pretty likely that one of these things has fallen on the roof of your house. So one one thing smaller than a millimeter is somewhere could be somewhere on my roof. And so did he like did he just go up on his roof and start looking for it, like scratching around for it? Yeah, well, uh. k- kind of. Um, so it started when he uh, he was having breakfast one day in his house um, outside Oslo in Norway. I imagine I don't know what his house is like, but I imagine it might be quite nice because he's like a famous musician. Anyway, so he's sort of sitting out on his veranda. And uh, he's got this white plastic table. He's just wiped it down. And then he kind of comes back and there's this black dot on the table. And it's a, it's a micrometeorite. And this kind of sets him off on this quest. And he kind of says, nobody... So if you want to find a micrometeorite, most people have to go to Antarctica to get these things, right? Because normally there's just so much other dust you know, if you imagine your roof, it's just like covered in dust, right? Right. Um, but he he was like, there's so much of this stuff. Surely I can find a way of separating these tiny micrometeorites out from all the other dust. And so, yes, you're right, Rowan. Eventually, he did just go up onto his roof and plenty of other roofs in the area and start collecting dust. And he, he just got stuck in. So inspired by his experience, you decided to have a go at it yourself. Um, how did it go? So it was pretty hard work, um, and we probably don't have time to go into all the stuff that I, uh, all the crazy stuff I was doing. Um, but that is all uh, that's all detailed in a really lovely feature that I wrote, if I do say so myself, for the <laughs> Christmas issue coming up in next week. Um, so you can have a read of it there. But uh, the kind of unfortunate truth is that I didn't find a micrometeorite, although I did find some people who have. But in your in your hunt for micrometeorites, were you able to just use stuff that you had sort of lying about the house or did you need any sort of specialist gear? Yeah. So that's kind of what I wanted to try and find out. So my hypothesis, I guess, was that, you know, can anyone just do this with like stuff lying around their house? And so that's what I tried to do. I just got hold of um, basically a little bucket to clean up my samples and a tea strainer to strain the meteorites to get rid of some of the um, the larger rocks. And then I bought uh, a USB microscope for about £20 off eBay. And then I just started having a look in this kind of pile of dirt and rubble. And so, um, yeah, anyone can have a go, but it is really um, it is really hard. And in fact, on my desk here right now, obviously you can't see it, but I have some of the little um, specks of rock that I picked out of all this stuff. And then I sent photographs of them to John Larson. But unfortunately, he wasn't impressed and he didn't think any of them were, were the real deal. <laughs> But Josh, um, I've I've been up on my roof getting muck and looking at it in a microscope uh, this year as well during lockdown. Um, I was looking for t- for uh, there's nothing unusual about it, Tiffany. <laughs> you know, that's just what blokes do. This is our thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I found I found I was looking for tardigrades in rotifers uh, with a microscope, um, but there was lots of little tiny bits of grit, and I thought you know it looked like sand and stuff. And, and so I'm going to go back. Uh, you've inspired me to go back and look for micrometeorites now. I'm really glad about that, Rowan. I think it's worth doing. Um, one thing I concluded from my uh, trials looking for micrometeorites is I think it's kind of a bit like any hobby. Um, so if you invest a little bit in a little bit of equipment, say like a decent microscope, for example, so one, for example, with two um, two eye holes, a binocular microscope, that kind of little investment will help you fare better, I think because one of the ways that you can identify these things is from the surface texture on the meteorite. So as they, as they come in through the atmosphere, they kind of get melted and the atmosphere kind of puts these little delicate ripples on the surface. And if you have a proper microscope, you can see things like that. So maybe wow. you want to uh, invest in a little microscope if you're going to give it a go. I'll, I'll report back. <laughs> sure. But one last question, Josh, what happened with the original micrometeorite that inspired John Larson's uh, adventure? Yeah, I was really curious about that too. And I forgot to ask him the first time I talked to him. So I emailed him afterwards and said, hey, what, what happened to that? And he said that, you know, he's now sort of quite an expert at this stuff. And he has all these clever systems for um, storing these micrometeorites. As you can imagine, they're obviously tiny. But he said that, you know, on this first occasion when he encountered this first one, what he did was he just put it in a matchbox. <laughs> and so obviously it got lost. So <laughs> it's kind of a sad, uh, a sad ending to the story. But on the other hand, it's kind of given me some hope because obviously he kind of had a bit of a failure when he started out at this, just like I did. So maybe, and maybe for you as well, Rowan, if you're going to give it a go, maybe we'll succeed one day in our hunt for these things. That's the spirit. And now our slot where we take stock of our place in the bigger picture of the cosmos or in history. Yes, it's the total perspective vortex. Rowan, you've got... I've got ancient rock art. Always lovely. Yeah, always lovely. Uh, this is even more special because it's from the Amazon. And so, you know, I, I admit to being very Euro-biased here, but because if I think of cave art, I tend to think of Chauvet and caves like that in France... Um, but this is in Colombia, but it's also really old, 12,500 years old. It's apparently the, the earliest secure evidence that we have of people in that region who've made the art here. Oh, wow. And so what is the art actually of? Well, so first of all, it's, it's huge. It's a massive collage of images stretching across five kilometres of rock face. And there's pretty much everything, geometric patterns, loads of hand prints, uh, loads of people and animals. And, and that's the most interesting thing, loads of animals. And does it include presumably lots of, uh, you know, megafauna that have long since gone extinct? Yeah, there's, there's giant sloths and mastodons, and they're kind of ancient relatives of elephants. And there's a paleo llama, which is a, like an extinct kind of llama. Oh, I love that word, paleo llama. I know. Yeah, cool. <laughs> um, yeah so, it, but what's really amazing is that in some images, there are little pictures of humans with their hands raised in the air, pointing towards the megafauna as if they're in awe of them or they're worshipping them. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think it's amazing that we, I, I love stuff like this because it's finding connections with people going far back in time. Um, and that's why I thought it was a good, uh, good for the total perspective vortex. And it, it made me also, the other day I was in Richmond Park in London and I found a burial mound in the park. 
that's uh, between 3,000 and 5,000 years old. There's another connection there. That's quite an incredible discovery you made there. You, uh, I'm surprised you didn't start with that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah I, okay, I can't claim a discovery of it. I was following a map. Time out. We want to tell you about a special live online event that's free to subscribers. The New Scientist Christmas Special Live. Woohoo! It's an end yeah. of year party and quiz with New Scientist journalists. And Rowan, you are the quiz master, right? Yep, I'm hosting it. It's on December the 17th. I'll be asking some of our colleagues questions such as, what's the funniest story of the year? You know, these are questions with subjective answers, a lot of them. Some of them are actual questions. Uh, or what's the best animal story of the year? Uh, Paleo crucial... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, late edition there. Um, and a, a crucial one is uh, what's the best evidence-based tips for surviving 2021? It's going to be a fabulous party and thousands of people have already signed up, so no pressure, Rowan, <laughs> but there is room for everyone. And there's also a chance to ask your own questions to our panel. Best questions win a new scientist jigsaw puzzle. Um, and those include uh, pictures of the Milky Way and some of our most uh, gorgeous cover art. Um, so go to newscientist.com slash events to find out more. It's free for subscribers. Yes, do come and join us December the 17th, free for subscribers at newscientist.com slash events. Now, this week's mag is a special issue. It's the you issue. Well, not the me issue, the you issue. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all about you. <laughs> Um, uh, there are pieces in it such as when did you begin and is there more than one of you? Uh, what happens after you die? Uh, and Tiff, you've done a fascinating piece on the illusion of the continuous self, uh, which sounded to me like a, like a European art house film. <laughs> what is it? Yeah. So as part of this big special issue we've done, I looked into the question of whether you are the same person across your lifetime, you know, whether you are the same old you at 16 or 46 or 96. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not the same. I'm not even the same person as I was a year ago, to be honest. I'm, I'm, uh, this, this year has taken a lot out of me. So. <laughs> oh, God, tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what did you find out? So in terms of the physical pieces of us, some of our cells are actually as old as we are, while others live for only a matter of days. Okay, which cells live longest? So some of our longest living cells are in the heart and also in the brain. But of course, the connections between even our longest lived brain cells are often changing. And everything that we experience, major things like disease or injury, or even little things like what we ate for breakfast, can influence these connections and our choices and how we behave. And as the researchers I spoke to explained, ultimately, it's how we behave and specifically the habits we have that make up our personalities, what many of us think of as the essence of who we are, who you are. Obviously, our, your person, one's personalities <laughs> can change. They shift over time, right? I mean, I'm not perhaps not quite as reckless as I was when I was younger, for example. Yeah, exactly. So though we all have this continuous sense of self, this notion that we are the same across our lifetimes, in fact, when researchers look at how our personalities shift, it's pretty dramatic. So over a handful of years, that change isn't too significant. You know, it seems more or less to say the same. But in one study, they actually looked at people across a gap of more than 60 years. And when you look over those kinds of time spans, people's personalities are completely different. Wow. You know, I, I'm not sure if I find that upsetting or reassuring that it changes that much. 
Yeah. I mean, because the thing is, having a consistent sense of self is is really important to us. Um, So we have this tendency to edit our past versions of ourselves to make them line up with who we are now, to keep this illusion of a continuous sense of self. As psychologist Helga Gilmeister put it to me, we make ourselves up in the past. So, you know, maybe you weren't so reckless as you think. (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) What about, it's also weird, I mean, this is perhaps slightly different, but how a few weeks ago we talked on the podcast about how you can disrupt the sense of self with uh, psychoactive drugs. So some drugs disrupt the default mode network in the brain, which is linked to our sense of self. And you get this effect called ego dissolution, where basically the boundaries to your sense of self disappear. That to me sounds kind of terrifying. Um, but I know some people actually find it somewhat freeing. Uh, anyway, uh, we tackle some pretty enormous questions in the You special, and uh, including whether you as an individual actually matter in the grand scheme of things and if there's life after death, two things that, Josh, you looked into. No spoilers, Josh, but is it good news about life after death? Well, dogged as my reporting was, I wasn't actually able to go beyond the grave. Um, (laughs) But we did look into some cool physics that suggests it might be possible for for there to be an afterlife. Wow. And Wow. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Just a small small headline there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, minor scoop. (laughs) And before that, uh, do we matter during our lifetimes? So I think it's really tough to answer that, isn't it? Like we, we obviously matter like lots and lots and lots to the people around us, like our children, our parents or whatever. Um, and I think as a generation, we probably, there's a, there's a good argument that we matter a lot more than previous ones. But um, I think probably, you know, just me and you and Tiff and Rowan, maybe we don't matter too much. Ouch. <laughs> just the lift i needed thanks for, thanks for coming on the show josh no problem i'll be back next week with more good news yeah. <laughs> well, you'll have to read read all about this in the you special and we'll tweet a link from new scientist pod and now it's time for climate hope or doom when we discuss some of the latest news to do with climate change and decide how full or empty we think the glass is looking yeah, and that analogy is spot on this week because for the first time, water is being traded on Wall Street. Wow, so water is like gold and oil and other commodities now, a thing that is being traded because it's so scarce. Yeah, so it used to be that you would just buy water at what they call the spot price, the price that it is at that moment, but now basically you can bet on it. You can trade water futures in the, that's how they call it. Now, I know that there have been years of drought in many parts of the U.S., in particular in California. It's one of the reasons why the wildfires were so bad this year. Is this kind of thing, the the rise of droughts and things like that, behind the move to list water on the stock exchange? Yeah, it does seem to be. uh, And it does stem from California, as so much does. Um, So the United States is the second biggest consumer of water in the world. And California uses at least 9% of the daily consumption. And water transactions in California added up to $2.6 billion between 2012 and 2019. Oh, wow. So at first it sounds bad, you know, even dystopian that water is on the stock market like this. But Mm. could it actually be a good thing? Because, you know, farmers who need to use a lot of it will be better able to plan for their water supply and budget for it and that kind of thing. Yeah, I had exactly the same thought at first. I thought, you know, this is horribly dystopian. 
But the thinking behind this water futures market is that it will give some planning ability to farmers and it will give them a bit of certainty about their budget and it adds some kind of price transparency to the market. But of course, people will still be making money from this. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what hedge funds do. So, you know, on balance, actually, I, I went back again to being uneasy that water is on the stock market. You know, uh, what we can have next? Air on the stock market, you know. <laughs> and there's a difference here as well between the way water is going to be traded and the way carbon credits are traded. But with carbon, there's an inbuilt cost to using it and that will reduce emissions. But with water futures, there's not an incentive built into to the product that will help conserve water. So is it ultimately climate hope or doom this week then? Yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, you know, as we've said, the, the list, this listing on the stock exchange could be good for farmers. But on balance, I don't think it's a good thing. And, you know, it does come because water is so scarce. And that's because of climate change. You know, we're seeing more than four billion people globally experiencing severe water scarcity at least a month each year. And that's led to conflicts, hundreds of conflicts in the last decade. And it's only going to get worse. So, you know, I, I won't say doom, but I'm going to go for climate neutral this week. So we heard earlier how Josh uh, didn't quite succeed at finding micrometeorites on his roof. Um, but the scientific community has not been completely shattered by this failure because we've had two space missions just this month that are returning space rocks to Earth. Our U.S. space correspondents Leah Crane and Chelsea White are going to tell us more. Chelsea, over to you. Thanks, Rowan and Tiff. So let's talk about Chang'e 5 first. Leah, that's already on its way back from the moon, right? Yep. It was a super quick mission. It landed on the moon on December 1st, took its samples, and then launched back off the moon again on the 3rd. Well, that's speedy. Why such a hurry? So it had to be fast for two reasons. The first one is that the lander is solar powered. So as soon as the sun went down on its landing site, it would have stopped working. And also, lunar night is incredibly cold, and the lander just wasn't built to survive those harsh conditions. So on the moon, a day lasts about 14 Earth days. So there was a really limited window to get all the sampling done and get back off the surface. And what did the lander do in the short time that it was up there? The main purpose of this mission was to take samples off the moon and bring them back to Earth. So the lander had some other scientific instruments on it, but the most important thing was getting those samples. So did it just scoop up some dirt then? Kinda. It had two sampling mechanisms. One of them was just a scoop, and the other one was a drill to get cores that dug down about two meters underneath the surface. And when was the last time anyone launched off the surface of the moon? Was it one of the Apollo missions? No, and I was surprised to learn this, but actually the last time anything launched off the surface of the moon was in 1976, which is when the Soviet Luna 24 probe brought back some samples. And those are the most recent moon rocks that we have. Okay. So obviously that makes this mission really special. But it's important in another sense, too, because this sort of experience and expertise is really setting up China as specialists in lunar exploration, isn't it? China planted a flag on the moon on this mission, too. Is NASA looking at this and thinking, whoa, we're getting left behind? <laughs> well, I can't say what the feeling is within NASA, but I do think there's been a bit of an atmosphere in the U.S. government of trying to maintain American leadership in space 
It's been a big talking point throughout the whole Trump administration. So my guess would be that there are some people feeling a little threatened right now, especially given that political gesture of the flag on the moon. But then again, NASA has its own plans for a lunar exploration program that could end up being more comprehensive and robust than the Chinese program. So I doubt they're really freaking out too much. So when will the Chang'e 5 samples get back to Earth then? It's expected around December 16th. I'm excited to see what they bring back. But right now I'm even more excited about some other samples, which just returned from the asteroid Ryugu aboard the Hayabusa 2 spacecraft. Right, that's the Japanese mission. And those samples have been a really long time coming, right? Yeah, Hayabusa 2 launched in 2014, and it's flown more than 5 billion kilometers since then. It's a lot harder to get to an asteroid than the moon. (laughs) So I know that Hayabusa 2 didn't land on Ryugu, so how did it pick up its samples? Well, it shot the asteroid, a drive-by asteroid shooting. Well, asteroid probably deserved it. (laughs) Um, Why shoot the asteroid? (laughs) Well, it actually shot the asteroid twice. Definitely deserved it then. (laughs) Yeah, it's undeniably a somewhat violent way to get samples, but it worked. The first shot was a small bullet that puffed up some dust and pebbles from the surface into the spacecraft sampler. The second was more dramatic, though. Uh, Hayabusa 2 used explosives to blast a bigger copper projectile at Ryugu to make this crater that was about 10 meters across. And then after the explosion, it swooped in and used its sampling arm to bounce off the surface, kind of like a pogo stick, and it grabbed a sample. Why make the crater? That seems like an awful lot of work for a little dust. Well, by making the crater, it exposed material that hadn't been on the surface before. So it hadn't been constantly bombarded by the solar wind and micrometeorites. And that pristine material, when scientists have a chance to finally examine it, will let us learn about how rocks change when they're exposed to space over a long period of time. And that will help us get a better grasp on what asteroids are made of and how they evolve. Cool. As we heard from Josh earlier, we tend to study meteorites that we collect after they fall to Earth as a proxy to understand asteroids. So why haven't we been able to do that for asteroids like Ryugu? Well, the rocks on Ryugu are extremely porous. They're probably about 30 to 50% empty space. So if they were to come through Earth's atmosphere, they'd just burn up and never make it to the ground. So these rocks will be completely new to us. And they're already here, right? So we can get started studying them? They are. Uh, Hayabusa 2 did this incredible drop-off where it flew right up to Earth, dropped the sample capsule at just the right moment so that it would make it through the atmosphere, and then it landed in Australia. And then the spacecraft changed its course so it could go on towards another asteroid. That is so awesome. So there's no shortage of samples right now, and I can't wait to find out what all these space rocks teach us. But until then, Rowan and Tiff, it's back to you. Thanks, Leia and Chelsea. Exciting stuff. Yeah, and in breaking spaceflight news, (laughs) breaking, (laughs) I didn't mean to say breaking. It is breaking news. It's it's literally breaking news. Uh, There was a SpaceX test flight this week of the spacecraft that they're going to use for missions to the moon and Mars. It's called Starship. It launched really well. It was the highest altitude they've got. But when it was coming down, it had what they call a hard landing, which means it blew up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It looked dramatic. It looked like a disaster. But SpaceX actually got a lot of data from it. They're very pleased with the the whole thing. Uh, Elon Musk tweeted, Mars, here we come. Feels like over-optimism in my view. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just, just Just a few, you know, details to iron out first. Yeah. 
that's all for now. Thanks for joining us, Josh, and uh, good luck in your search for micrometeorites. Thank you very much. <laughs> and thanks to all of you for listening. And just remember, before you go, uh, do join us free at the New Scientist end of year live party and quiz. That, uh, all details at newscientist.com slash events. And while you're there, go to newscientist.com slash pod20 for your special discount for listeners to our show. In the meantime, do spread the word about our show. Uh, goodbye for now. Take care. And let's play out again with that jazz meteorite clip. That's John Larson. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by Oli Guillou Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.